today. And what a wonderful chapter this has been. The Apostle Paul has called upon the life of Abraham, the patriarch of the faith, and has made it clear to his readers that the Old Testament testifies that Abraham was not saved by his works, his circumcision, nor his law-keeping. Rather, Paul says, Abraham was declared righteous when he believed God. He was declared righteous when he believed God. Verse 17 tells us that Abraham believed in the God who gives life to dead things and calls things into existence that do not exist. And in verse 22, we read this. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now today in verses 22 through 20, I'm sorry, 23 through 25, Paul will take all that he's discussed in this chapter and apply it to those of us who believe in Jesus. So let's read these verses together, verses 23 through 25 of chapter 4. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father, this is your word to your people. And God, I pray that I would not get in the way of you speaking to your people today. I pray, God, that everything I would say today would be what you want said to your people. Holy Spirit, please, uh, Receive the word today in each of the believers here and make it manifest in their life for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Paul brings chapter four to a close by stating, but the words, but the words. So he kind of turns there and says the words. Uh, Do you know words matter? Words matter. As a teacher and a trainer of others, I often share a Francis Bacon quote that was shared with me some time ago. It goes like this. Reading makes a full man. Conference, talking, makes a ready man. And writing makes an exact man. So reading makes a full man. Conference makes a ready man. And writing makes an exact man. As someone who tries to train leaders for God's church, uh, I often encourage people to write because it's when we write that we get down to the exact level, as Francis Bacon notes. And when it comes to matters of the faith, uh, we want exactness, right? Not just close enough. We we don't want to settle for close enough in our faith in matters of eternal life and death. We want exactness. And the reason that words matter is because words serve a purpose. Words are written and spoken in order to give proper knowledge. Proper knowledge is important because it's usually our knowledge that determines or our actions or how we use whatever it is we have knowledge about. So you could say it like this. Proper knowledge should lead to proper use. 
This is why Paul writes to the churches, that they would have proper knowledge of the faith and able to properly walk out their faith. This is also the reason that he has taken time to write chapter 4 on the patriarch Abraham. Paul sees our understanding of the patriarch of the faith as of paramount importance to our understanding of our own personal faith. So in verse 22, Paul says that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But, verse 23, the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. So I've titled today's message, as you can see, For Our Sake. These words were written for our sake. You see, the Jewish people that Paul is writing to, a lot of Jewish Christians here, did not need a history lesson on Abraham. They knew Abraham's story. They believed his story was their very own story. But many believed this for the wrong reason. They believed Abraham's story was their story because their bloodlines were connected to his. They were children of his by physical descent. They believed this because they were circumcised. He was circumcised, and they were circumcised, and that's what placed them in it. They believed that these things were what connected them to Abraham, thus making them heirs of the promises given to his offspring. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like assuming that because you're someone's descendant physically, like you're a child of someone, that you're going to get whatever they leave behind when they die. You're going to get the inheritance. But we've seen plenty of movies, and you probably even know personally people who this was not the case, right? It's not about who you are necessarily. It's about what's written in the will. That's who's going to get the inheritance. That's who's going to get the promises. Paul is going to tease this idea out a whole lot more later on in this book in chapters 9 through 11. But in this chapter, he's laying the groundwork by showing them that they have an improper knowledge that has led them to use the scriptures improperly. This is why Paul says that these words were not written for his sake, Abraham's sake, alone. This does imply that when they were written, they were in part written to honor Abraham, to preserve his memory. But that's not the primary reason, the only reason that they were written. Paul says they were written for our sake. So don't miss Paul's aim here, church. His aim is to deliver proper knowledge from the scriptures so that we would properly use the scriptures. That's why he says the words, it was counted to him, We're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. I can't tell I'm trying to drill that in this morning. (laughs) Trying to drill that in. Many of the Jewish people who had the faith had failed in seeing this. Many early Christians were failing at seeing this. They either had improper knowledge that would always lead to, as we said, improper use, Or they had proper knowledge, 
But don't miss this. They still failed when it came to proper use. So hear me clearly. Improper knowledge will always lead to improper use. But proper knowledge does not always guarantee proper use. Paul says to the Christians in Rome that the words, it was counted to him as righteousness, were not written for his sake alone, but for our sake also. Now, we must ask the question, is Paul just talking about these words, like the ones we have in parentheses, it was counted to him? Or... Or is Paul stating something here that has much broader implications? Let me be clear. Might Paul be hinting to the Christians in Rome and Christians everywhere for all time that all the scriptures are for our sake? All the scriptures are for the sake of Christians. I believe that's precisely what he's doing. Paul will later say in Romans 15, 4, For whatsoever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. Church, it's so important that we don't miss this little lesson that Paul is giving his readers. He's trying to help them understand That God has given you his word. Genesis to Revelation. And all of it should be read as Christian literature. All of it. Its proper use is to give you encouragement that you might have hope. A hope that is not based in your ability but rather in Jesus' sufficiency. Now, some of you might be thinking at this point, you mean all of Scripture, like uh, all of Scripture is written that we might have hope in Jesus, even those weird books, we can be honest this morning, even those weird books that have weird laws and really cryptic stories in them? Yes, all of them, all of them. Listen to Paul explain a somewhat obscure Old Testament law in 1 Corinthians 9.9. This is what he says. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. What a weird law, right? How in the world does that apply to us? Paul asks, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake it was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop wow that's a mind-blowing explanation of an obscure old testament law right even the weird stuff in scripture was meant to give us hope when rightly understood All of God's word was meant to give hope for those in Jesus. Paul says it was written for our sake. 
If you continue on in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul goes over some of Israel's history, and this is what he says in verse 11. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down. The reason that they were written down is not to give a good history book. The reason they were written down was for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's us. So here's the deal, church. People often tell me that they struggle to read their Bibles. And I understand. I used to struggle to read my Bible too. Now you might think, well, that's very cliche, Pastor. Uh, you used to re- struggle to read your Bible. Did you used to struggle with sin too? No, I still struggle with sin. Um, sin very frequently. But here's the thing. The reason I don't struggle to read my Bible as I used to is because I've come to understand its proper use. It's much like the same way that I don't struggle to grab a cold drink on a hot day. I long for it. I've come to understand that just as a cold drink refreshes my body on a hot day, so God's word refreshes my soul in a tough, crazy, and exhausting world. That's what God's word does for me. Now, here's the deal. If you're a new believer, if you're a new believer, you absolutely need encouragement to read your Bible. Just like my one-year-old constantly needs encouragement to drink water. That little dude loves to be outside. He wakes up and says, outside, outside, he wants to go outside. And he will play outside all day long. He will pass out and die outside if we do not force him to drink water. He does not understand He hasn't connected the dots here yet, right? But that's not the same for my three- and five-year-old. My three- and five-year-old go outside on a hot day, and within five minutes they're saying, Daddy, we need water. Can I get some water? They understand. Water refreshes you just like God's Word. But here's the point I want to make. If you've been a Christian for some time, and you're still struggling to read your Bible Can I offer up perhaps maybe you're using it improperly? Maybe you're using it improperly. Maybe you're using it to find ammo for some theological argument on Facebook. Maybe you're using it as a means of justification. Well, I I read my Bible, so I'm doing what God wants me to do. Maybe you're using it to find another law that you can abide by and hold everyone else in contempt to. Maybe you're using it to find purpose so that you can live your best life. This is a very modern, popular Western way, right? Or maybe you're using it just like you do the vacuum cleaner at your house. You just know it needs to be done. Man, church, these are all improper ways of using God's word. Paul says these words were written for our sake that through their encouragement, we might have hope. Hope in the God of the Scriptures who justifies the ungodly. Hope in the God who speaks things into existence. Hope in the God who gives life to the dead. (laughs) You see, we live in a hopeless world. There's absolutely no true and lasting hope to be found here. 
No true and lasting hope to be found in the pursuit of your dreams. Just heard that recently on a Instagram reel. A guy, some, some guy said, you know, when I married my wife, I told her, I, I'll give you anything. Monogamy, a house, car, whatever you want, but you can't have my dream. And a guy he's sitting talking with, amen that. And I'm like, this is so dumb. You can't have my dream. But that's the, that's the American way, our dream, the pursuit of our dreams. That's where our hope lies. No, it doesn't. Hope doesn't lie there. Hope is not to be found even in the cure for diseases. As much as we would like those, there's no hope there. No true and lasting hope there. There's no true and lasting hope to be found in green energy. There's no true and lasting hope. There's no true and lasting hope even on life on another planet. No true and lasting hope. Because the reality is this. We all die. That's the reality. Everyone in the history of the world has died. Mortality is the true Achilles heel of humanity. It just is. But not for Christians. Not for Christians. Hebrews 11 tells us this. That Abraham died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. For he made it clear, Abraham made it clear, that he was seeking a homeland. If he had been thinking of the land in which he had gone out, he could and had an opportunity to return. But as it was, he desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called his God, for he has prepared for him, and he has prepared for all who believe, church, a city. (laughs) A city. That's the hope we have, church. That's why Paul says these words and all of Scripture were written for our sake. (laughs) He didn't want the Christians in Rome, nor us, to be ignorant of the hope that God has given us in his word. He didn't want us reading Genesis 15, 6 and thinking that it was counted to him was written for Abraham's sake alone. No, verse 24, look at this. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. (laughs) Church, that is good news. Good news. Now, I want to make a few clarifying remarks before moving on. At Grace Fellowship, we stress the importance of exposition and exegesis when we approach God's Word. What these two words mean is that we don't go to our Bibles taking texts out of their context and making them say whatever we want them to say, like some kind of fortune cookie, right? That's the, that's the quick route, the fast pass to becoming a mystic. We don't do that. So everyone needs some training on how to read and understand your Bible. But church, there are many people who have gotten lost in scholasticism and are not receiving the grace and hope God desires his people to receive through his word. So we must always make sure that we aren't saying something that God's word isn't saying while maintaining that these words were written for our sake, that we might have hope in the God who raised Jesus 
our Lord from the dead. Now I want you to look at verse 24 and check out that sentence structure. At first glance, depending on what translation you have, you might think that Paul is saying, for those who believe in Jesus who rose from the dead. We know the New Testament calls on us to believe in Jesus But what Paul is actually saying here, he's being a lot more intentional with his words. Paul is saying this, that for those who believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Do you see that difference? The God who raised Jesus from the dead. Why is he doing this? Well, Paul is again wanting to cinch up the faith that Abraham had in God and the faith that we have in God showing them to be the same faith. Thus, if Abraham was counted righteous, we too shall be counted righteous. And this is something that the readers of Paul's day would have struggled with a lot more than maybe we do. You might remember Philip the Apostle asking Jesus to show him the Father and it would be enough. And Jesus responds this way, Philip, I've been with you for so long, and yet you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus there and Paul here are seeking to show that faith in one is faith in the other. So Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. We believe God, and it is counted to us as righteousness. But let me make one massive distinction You cannot believe in God today if that belief is not in Jesus. Got to be very clear about that. There are a lot of seemingly good teachers that have went off the the ledge here and said that belief in in, in God, it's got to be good enough, right? No, it's got to be in Jesus. Here's why. Before Jesus came, Abraham believed God as he had made himself known at that point in history. But Hebrews 1 says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. God has now made himself known so clearly through the person of Jesus. And Jesus testifies to this. Jesus tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through who? Jesus, me. That's why Paul doesn't leave out verse 25, where he says, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Church, it's through Jesus' salvific work that we have access to the Father. Two weeks ago, uh, I was getting to hang out in the children's ministry because our home group got to serve back there. Isn't that wonderful? It's so good getting to do that. Uh, I'm not being sarcastic. I really enjoy it, and I've heard a lot of other people do as well. Well, I'm seriously, I'm being serious. Um, They're like, yeah, right, Uh, No, it's fun uh, when you don't have to do it every week. Um, And you don't have to take those kids home with you. Uh, But I taught the catechism question for that day, which was this. Why must our Redeemer be truly God? 
And here's a great answer to that question. Listen to this. Our sin was committed against God. Only God can forgive a transgression against himself. This is why some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day were horrified when Jesus said he forgave sins. They understood the implications of what he said. How could a mere man forgive the sin we have against God? A mere man cannot, but God can. Jesus needed to be fully human in order to be our substitute, but he needed to be fully God in order for his obedience and suffering to be perfect and for God's justice to be completely and eternally satisfied. So here's what I hope you see here in this text. Paul is marrying all of salvation history with the person and work of Jesus. That's what he's doing. We believe in him, in him, the God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Another thing that Paul is intentionally doing here is putting on display. For those of us who hope in Jesus, the fact that we hope against hope, just like Abraham. Remember back to verse 19 in chapter 4 and Josh's sermon where it says, In hope, Abraham believed against hope. This meant that Abraham believed against the normative means. Right? Old people don't have babies. But Abraham believed God, that God said he would have offspring. Right? Abraham believed against hope. And Paul is saying here, church, so do we. So do we. In Paul's day and even in 2022, as we said earlier, people don't rise from the dead. The dead are dead. This is the only life you have. No one knows what lies on the other side of death. And there are dozens, heck, there are hundreds of notions about what happens after death. But the only guarantee you have is this life. This life is the only guarantee you have. So make the most of it. Don't let anything get in your way of satisfying your heart with all that you dream of. This is what we're told, right? But this isn't the way of Jesus. No, Jesus says something very different. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's because of this hoping against hope mentality that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then church, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because the Christian life is one that says, I will forego my life so that I may be put to death with Christ 
And if I die with him, I am sure to be resurrected one day bodily in a resurrection like his, into a new life, into a better life, an eternal life where Jesus has made all things new. But I want you to think right now. I want you to think. What would my life look like? What would your life look like if we weren't believing and hoping in Jesus? What would we be doing? And if you're sitting here today thinking, eh, I mean, my life would probably look a lot the same. I probably just wouldn't be here this morning. Then I would caution you. You may not be in the faith. Abraham's faith in God radically changed and altered his life. If God is a liar, Abraham's a fool. But if God tells the truth, Abraham's the heir of everything. That's what this life is about. This life is about how will you play the hand that you've been given? How will you play it? Will you push all in on God's promises? Or will you play it safe? So that if God is a liar, we haven't lost everything. Church, we all have believing problems. But this is why the scriptures were written. They were written in order to beckon you into believing God. Believing in his substitutionary cross work on your behalf. Believing in his resurrection, which is the guarantee of a new life, an eternal life, a resurrection bodily. Believing in his lordship over every area of your life. That his way is the better way. The scriptures constantly remind us how there is no hope in money, power, kings, or horses, health, or security. But there is true and lasting hope in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And this is the reason that the story of Abraham was told. That we too might believe God and be Counted righteous. Paul says that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Church, for our sake, Jesus came down from heaven, was born of a virgin, lived a life of perfect obedience, yet suffered under the sinful hand of man. But more, he suffered under the righteous wrath of God for our sake. His Blood and his body were given up for the sins that through his sacrifice we would be made clean. Clean. But that's not all. Jesus was raised and now he will never die again because he defeated death. That's why we sing, church, death. Nah, have no hold on me. Where is your sting?
Church, our faith in that promise that God, our God has delivered us from death, has defeated death, that we now don't die. <laughs> that should radically change everything we do in this momentary, like a vapor, 80 years. It should change everything we do. It should change how we think. But our world is screaming at you. Your flesh is screaming at you. Those you live with might be screaming at you to not let go. Stay in control. Live your life. But Jesus is calling you through his word, reminding you, that there is no hope in having control. There's no hope found in your sovereignty. There's no hope in your ingenuity or your work ethic. There's no hope in your obedience or your religious duty. There's no hope to be found, but there is hope to be found in Jesus and only in Jesus. You know how freeing this truth is if we're able to believe this? And I think that's the problem. Is that for those of us that have believed this, we're often kind of swayed into Christian liberalism is what I call it. I know people hate being called a liberal, but that's what it is. It, it, it's thinking that my life can look so much like the world and function like the world, but yet I'm a Christian. When if these true beliefs about who our God is and what he's done don't burst out of your heart to live so counterculturally, then James is right. Our faith might be dead. So how do stubborn and sinful people who are prone to only trust themselves, it's everyone in the room, how do we believe this good news? Well, it takes a miracle. <laughs> it takes a miracle. It takes new birth from above. I want to close today by sharing a story with you that uh, is probably one of my most favorite stories in the world. Um, I don't think I'm going to cry in this story, but I might. I don't know. I haven't tried telling it. Uh, I met my wife when we were 19 in college, and she was beautiful, which is the, you know, the main thing you're looking for at 19, right? Um, so that made everything else cool. Um, but she was also, like, perfect. Um, seriously, like, she was everything I was not. Uh, smart, studious, followed the rules, um, took care of things that needed to be taken care of, uh, did what she was supposed to do. And she made me a, a, a better, better man. I mean, really helped me grow up uh, from 19 to, to 23 when we, when we got married. And, um, but when we got married, uh, as we began doing life together, and, and you know marriage is, is pretty intimate, and, um, and you see each other without makeup and put on. Um, and 
something started sticking out to me. Um, it seemed that my wife, um, while she go to church every Sunday and follow the rules, um, it, it just seemed that she had no passion for Christ, that she had no passion and love for Jesus. And, and, I, and I wrestled with this for, for some time, about a couple years. I, I never told her this, but I just prayed. Maybe, God, I'm being too hard on her, right? Like, that's often the case, guys, in marriage. That's why you should pray about this. Uh, maybe you're just being too critical. But, but seriously, on a, on a real tender note, like my wife, she just didn't long for the things that someone filled with God's Spirit should long for. And... Uh, I'm thankful to God because he began revealing it to her and uh, in, in a number of ways that I don't have time to tell you about. But one day we were having a discussion in our home, and, uh, and all I remember about that discussion slash argument was that she was trying to, um, it felt like she was trying to get things from me that I couldn't give her, right? She's trying to fill up this hole that, that could only be filled by Christ. And I told her that in that moment. I said, Casey, I love you, but I can't give you these things. Like, only Jesus can give you this. And she just started weeping, because this is exactly what God had been telling her for months. She just began weeping. And, uh, and I didn't know what to do. Um, you think you always got a plan, and I didn't know what to do. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm crying now, and, and I just... I just opened my Bible. I just got a Bible, and I sat down. We sat down together, and I opened it up, and I opened it to John 3.16. And I said, Casey, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And she read that with me, and we read it again, and we read it again. And, and now we're both just sobbing, and this is my wife's statement in that moment. She said, I know this is true, but it's not true for me. It's not true for me. See, there is a chasm that we cannot cross between spiritual death, which we're all born into, and spiritual life. And there is nothing you can do to get across that chasm. No matter how good my wife was, she had realized, I cannot cross this chasm. This is not true for me. Tried this, worked this. So in that moment, my wife and I got on our faces, and we just cried out to God. We just said, God, would you please give Casey faith? This is a gift. Would you please make her believe? Would you help her? God, please. (laughs) And my wife was born again on that day. (laughs) Got to baptize my wife. And let me tell you something, married people. You know, you know when something's different, something's going on with your spouse, right? Well, let me tell you, when you live with a spiritually dead person and then all of a sudden you live with a spiritual alive person, whoa. That's the doctrine of conversion. <sighs> Nobody's got to school me on that. She was dead and now she's alive. And now my wife, filled with God's spirit, longs for the things of God. She wants to pass those on to her children. I don't have to push that upon her. I don't have to, hey, you need to be. No, my wife loves God because his love has been poured into her heart miraculously. 
This is the good news of the gospel. That only God's word, written for our sake, can provide for us, church. It's the only hope we got. And God's word is powerful and effective, and it will accomplish all that it sets out to do. Don't give up hope. You're sitting here today, and maybe you need to be born again. Call out to the God of the word. If you know someone who needs to be born again, continue calling out to the God of the word. Believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. It doesn't matter where you're at. Believe in the God who calls dead things to life. <laughs> Nothing is impossible for this God. Remember the, the, the desperation I felt a year into my marriage thinking, I've married a lost person. What is life going to look like as a minister of the gospel and I've married a lost person? How have I screwed up, Lord? But the Lord had more redemption to write that was beyond what I could fathom because he's so good. He's so good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness today. We thank you for your word, and thank you, God, that you have written these words for our sake. Oh, God, you love us. And you've put this on display so well throughout your word God, I do pray, I pray, God, this morning for, for faith, for those sitting here. God, I pray that they would believe. God, we can't make anybody believe. God, telling even teary-eyed testimony of your goodness, of how you've, you've miraculously delivered new birth, God, that can't uh, on its own uh, manipulate anyone into believing, God, but your word, your sovereign, powerful word written for our sake can. And so we're trusting in your word. Jesus, we're trusting in you today. We pray that you would have your way with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Carlton's gonna help us respond.